0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. You know, in many ways, you know, evolution does didn't necessarily, uh, you know, value those risk takers because they were, many of them would die. So it's the ones who follow that path of certainty of, you know, finding the most hospitable environment, staying there, building a tribe, you know, making sure everybody stays, you know, tightly packed and tightly, tightly knit. Those are the ones who flourished. But when you look at, you know, our current world and our cu- current society, like you said in that passage you read, you know, no one has ever achieved a dream in the comfort of certainty. And, you know, that's not, some poetic philosophy. It's just a reality of, if you have a dream, it's probably not to do the same thing you're doing every day. Achieving that dream will require you to leave the world that you currently know. Give up things that you currently have in search of something new. And, you know, stepping through that threshold of entering the world of uncertainty is by far one of the scariest things any entrepreneur, any filmmaker, any any you know creator of any kind has to face.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually came across your work uh, because we had a chance to meet at uh, Jared Kleinert's event, Meeting of the Minds. And I got to see your talk and got an early copy of your new book, which we will talk about. But before we get there, uh, I want to start by asking you, what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on the choices you've made with your life and your career?
1: Hmm. Social group as in like... Friend group yeah. or extracurricular group? Um, either one, both. So, study, you know, whichever thing, whichever one you think makes the most sense. Well, weirdly and that's funny because I've never thought about that. I think both of them have had, like, really profound effects on where I am today. I just didn't know it at the time. Mm-hmm. I think, so from a friend perspective, I didn't have that many friends the first half of high school mm-hmm. actually for all of high school <laughs> i went from maybe like a, a few like a couple friends in the first half to like 10 you know in the second half
0: uh-huh.
1: um and i i do th- I, I jumped around to different groups i never really felt i fit in i always did have like one friend who is you know my best friend but It was never really consistent and always sort of jumped around. And I love those guys. But I think what that did for me personally and psychologically was it sort of made me this, sort of like this social nomad, like not really having a home. Mm -hmm. Because in high school, you know, there's all these cliques. There's the popular kids. There's the sports kids. There's the theater kids. And I never really had my place. I sort of just moved around. Mm -hmm. Um, And from an extracurricular perspective, perspective, I like would do anything I could to get out of class. But when it came to student government, it was the most fun. Like I would ditch class, not do homework and just spend, you know, 10 hours a day working on student government things. Mm -hmm. And in hindsight, I think the reason I loved it so much is there were no rules and there was no assignments. It was just about, you know, doing whatever we wanted, how we wanted for the goal of just making school more enjoyable for everyone Mm -hmm. and yeah i just don't think i did that well in the structured classroom of you know sit in a seat for 60 minutes and listen to someone um but the second i was let loose in student government i would be running around the school like trying to put events together and trying to make you know Different programs happen because it was a lot more fun. And in hindsight, I can see that's was really entrepreneurship. Even though I didn't have a business, I just had like programs and events. It really was about you know getting people trying to make things happen. Mm -hmm. What did it teach you about leadership? Oh my god, so much! I I have this joke with my best friends that. And I'll never write this book because no one will want to read it. But I always have this joke of like, you know, I could write an entire book called Everything I Needed to Learn About Life I Learned in High School. Mm -hmm. Just not, just, and then the subtitle is Just Not in Class. Mm. And it's, I really believe it in the sense that, and, you know, what I learned about leadership was so the way my high school worked is that there, you know, there's a student body president who's almost always a senior in the school. But what happens is that in like the high school constitution, there was this like small little loophole that said, it can also be the student body president can also be a second semester junior, but it just almost never happens. And no one really paid attention to that loophole. But when I was going to become a second semester junior, I thought, you know, why not just give it a shot and see what happened? And sort of against all odds, I remember going up against this guy, he was the, He is just so cool and likable and was, you know, the captain of the soccer team and the golf team and just a really cool, nice guy. Everybody loved him. And of course, he's a senior. Um, And I went up against him and I was like virtually unknown. Like I said, like I didn't have like a main friend group. And, you know, against all these odds, I ended up winning. And I actually learned one of my biggest leadership lessons in life Right after I won, because as a junior trying to lead the student body, student government, which is composed of, you know, a quarter seniors, a quarter juniors, a quarter sophomores and freshmen, I learned a huge mistake that I made, which was I had assumed because I had the position of being the president, I was able to, you know, sort of demand and expect them to follow my direction. And there was sort of this like huge backlash to the point of almost like the student government wanted to do like a coup because I didn't know that leadership, even if you have the position, even if you won, you know, fair and square, it still has to be earned over time. Mm. And a job title isn't leadership, a job title is just your starting place to start earning. The right and the privilege of someone following your lead, and that's something I had to learn the hard way very early on.
2: Yeah.
1: So, you chose to
0: do something uh, despite the fact that almost all of the odds are were stacked against you in this situation. Where does that come from?
1: I have a theory where. You know, the easy answer, sort of like the cop-out answer would be like, it's genetic, but I actually think it's, (laughs) I, I, you know, I love when people just answer questions like, oh, I don't know, I guess it's just within me because it's just the easiest cop-out without having to think about it. Mm -hmm. Um, If I did have to try to have a theory, I think my theory actually comes from about 90 years ago. So to understand really who I am and who, you know, my My family is, you have to understand that my grandpa was born in Iran 92 years ago. My grandpa's still alive. He's 92. And he was born in Iran to a family of, he had an older brother, four older sisters than him. And when he was three years old, his father passed away. And in Iran at that time, women weren't allowed to work. So it was really up to that eldest brother to sort of provide for the family. And then two years after that, that older brother also passed away. So now my grandpa, who's five years old, is the only male left in the family. But his mother had a lot of foresight and she, you know, was very adamant that he would get his education and she just made ends meet. She you know, sold her wedding rings, sold furniture, you know, did whatever she could to just put food on the table. But by the time my grandpa was about like eight years old, nine years old, he started you know, realizing that this isn't really sustainable. So he went to the newspaper and looked in the classified section and saw that the government, the Iranian government, was putting out an order asking for bids for paint thinner for you know, some government building and you know he's eight or nine years old doesn't know better so he just goes and finds like the the order form and fills out the information and you know because he's so young he you know grossly underbids the amount that it that it should cause you know turns in the form and because he underbids so much he got the order so the government gives him the money and he gets, you know, he goes to the bazaar and finds this family friend who has paint thinner and gets the paint thinner, gives it to the government. And he's, like, home free. And he even, I know, when I ask him this story, he tells me about how he was, like, so happy he went and got this, like, giant bag of pistachios, which to him was, like, the biggest luxury. So a few weeks later, he's in his geometry class, and the police show up. And the police, you know, pull him out of class and tell this kid, the paint thinner you gave us was expired. So if you don't get us good paint thinner right away, you're going to have a serious problem. And, you know, this is Iran in like (laughs) the early 20th century. When when the police are saying we're going to have a serious problem, they mean it. So he... You know, scrambles back, goes back to that family friend who sold him the expired paint thinner and tells him the situation. And that guy goes, that's your problem, not mine. So now my grandpa has to go, you know, search other places. And he eventually finds this other paint thinner dealer, you know, uses profits to just barely buy the paint thinner, gives it back to the government and he's safe. But what that ends up doing is it spurs him on this journey of doing, you know, more government contracts, learning how to import and export. And, you know, over decades and decades and decades, he ends up building like a really remarkable business to the point where by the time he's 50 years old, he's one of the wealthier Jews in Iran. And he's working in this big, high-rise building. And right around then is when the Iranian revolution happens. And because he's Jewish, he was put on this blacklist. And one day he was in his office on the top floor of this high rise. And the Revolutionary Guard, you know, broke into the building, shattered the glass, surrounded all the exits, and made their way up the stairs and, you know, essentially kidnapped my grandfather at gunpoint, put a bag over his head and took him to a compound to be executed. And I know when I've asked him this story, he's talked about how, you know, the scariest part of all of it is that they didn't tell you what was happening. But you slowly piece it together when, you know, there were different people, different prisoners at that compound, and they would you know, be called. Their names would be called over the speaker system, and they would disappear, and you would hear gunshots. and They would never return. So my grandpa slowly figured out what was happening, and, you know, he tried to do whatever he could to try to escape. Um, he tried to bribe the guards. You know, nothing would work until one day it was finally the day where he heard his name called over the speaker system and they put a bag over his head and walk him down this hallway and the bag is finally taken off and he sees that he's outside of the compound one of the one of the guards had accepted the bribe so he you know flees to america as a refugee but when he gets there he's back to where he was when he was a kid you know having to provide for a family with nothing and over the past 30 years you know he's had like 12 failed businesses in america but he's just kept trying and trying and trying until the point where he's doing you know remarkably well again here and he's 92 years old and still goes to the office i believe about six times a day at 92 um and not because he has to but that's just you know in his blood and when I reflect on this story, to me, it's really the story of possibility. And there's almost this implicit message in the story of there's always a way. No matter how dire your circumstances, no matter how limited your resources, if you you know, take full responsibility and give it everything you have, it's not gonna be easy, it's not gonna be enjoyable, it's not gonna be a walk in the park, but at the end, you'll find a way to make it happen and the crazy part is I was never told this story explicitly until I was in my 20s when I was a kid and I would ask my grandpa for the story of the revolution he would sort of just like brush it out brush it over and there would be you know he was in that execution compound for a while and there would be you know, family photo albums where he wasn't in the family photos, and there'd be family stories where he wasn't part of those stories. And I'd always ask my grandma, you know, where is grandpa during this time? And she always said, to Donishkabude, which means he was at the university, which I didn't know was code word for he was in that death compound. Mm-hmm. So I, I do believe. There's this great line that I've heard that says, sometimes the most powerful messages in your childhood are the ones that were never explicitly said. Sometimes the most powerful messages in your childhood are the ones that were never explicitly said. And I do believe that somehow this message of possibility and, you know, there's always a way was in the air in my my upbringing. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. Uh, Well, I know that this story really begins uh, with you at USC as a freshman. And this is something that struck me in the book. And I I underlined it because I think we both share this in common. Me coming from an Indian background, you coming from an Iranian background. You said, but for me, (laughs) after my parents had told me for years that my medical school graduation was their biggest dream, each time my fingers hit the keyboard, I felt as if I was shattering their hopes one stroke at a time. Take us to that moment and and explain to me where this came from.
1: So, you know, like pretty much where that lad story ended with my childhood. In that childhood was this expectation that I would become a doctor. And it wasn't this, you know, when I was a kid, it wasn't this overbearing, like daunting. You must be a doctor. It was actually very pleasant. You know, Mm -hmm. I was a kid and... My parents told me how I'm going to be this wonderful, you know, surgeon one day. And when you're a kid, you're just like, really? That's what I'm going to be? That sounds awesome. You know, <laughs> that's cool. You're a doctor. you get to save people's lives. Like, you know, it's not rocket science. You just have to, you know, study hard and go to school. Like, okay, I can, I can figure that out. And, you know, in third grade, I wore scrubs to school for Halloween, high school. <laughs> like, you think it's funny, but it, I actually, I remember having you know, most kids when they're, you know, growing up, their mom puts their finger paintings up on the refrigerator. Uh My mom put a skeleton chart on the refrigerator. And, you know, it's actually really funny because that skeleton chart was on the fridge when I would like eat my, you know, cereal for breakfast, I would just like stare at that chart because I was bored and I would just like read it every morning. And You know, I don't know how many bones there are in the body, but there's like a ton. And I remember, I think this was maybe like third grade, the PE coach. And I wasn't the best at PE. I was like a pretty chubby kid and I wasn't very athletic. Um, But the PE coach, you know, one day was like, I'll give an automatic A to anybody who can answer the hardest trivia question on earth. And all the kids are like, you know, sitting up straight, trying to figure it out. And you can like see the PE coach like racking his mind for like just the most impossible question that like, you know, third graders will never know the answer to. And he like holds a finger in the air and like points to it. And he says, what bone is in this finger? And I just yell out,
2: phalanges.
1: (laughs) And, you know, the PE coach's teacher, like eyes like spread wide open and You know, from that day on, he called me the doctor like my whole childhood, and that nickname sort of stuck as a kid. So by the time I got to college, being a pre-med wasn't just about my major. It was my entire identity. So what happened is really within the first few weeks of college, I was really shocked that I had assumed I would you know, start college as a pre-med, jumping out of bed every morning. But within the first few weeks, I remember slowly and eventually hitting snooze four or five times each morning, not because I was tired, but really because I was bored. And I ended up spending every day lying on my dorm room bed, staring up at the ceiling and I would look over at the, you know, the stack of biology books on my desk and feel like they were dementors sucking the life out of me. So at first I assumed I was just being lazy, but eventually I began to wonder, maybe I'm not on my path. Maybe I'm on a path somebody placed me on and I'm just rolling down. So I start going through this, what I want to do with my life crisis, but, you know, as I'm sure you can relate to with your parents, it's not something you can actually tell your parents you're going through. It sort of has to be this secret crisis. Yeah. So, you know, my parents are calling me by, you know, by day and I'm saying, oh, pre-med is great. And then the, the second I hang up with them, I used to like, you know, ensue back into my panic. And my questions of what I want to do with my life slowly begin to evolve into, all right, if I don't know what... I want to do with my life. You know, I know what I'm interested in, but, you know, even if I, you know, went into business or tech or entertainment, like, how did all these people who I looked up to, how did they do it? You know, how did Bill Gates sell his first piece of software out of his dorm room when nobody knew his name? How did Spielberg become the youngest studio director in Hollywood history when he was rejected from film school? You know, these are the things they don't really teach you in school. So I just assumed there had to be an answer out there. It didn't seem like that complicated of a question. So I just went to the library and started just ripping through business books and biographies and self-help books, but eventually I was left empty-handed. And that's when my naive 18-year-old thinking kicked in and I thought, well, if no one's written the book I'm dreaming of reading, why not write it myself? You know, I thought I could just call up Bill Gates, interview him, interview everyone else and I'll be done in a few months. Mhm. That I assumed would be the easy part. The hard part, I figured, was getting the money to fund this journey. You know, I was buried in tuition payments, I was all out of bar mitzvah cash, so there had to be a way to make some quick cash. So, two nights before final exams, freshman year of college, I'm in the library doing what everyone does in the library right before finals. I'm on Facebook. And, you know, on Facebook, I see someone offering free tickets to the prices right. And my first thought is, what if, what if I go on this show and win some money to fund this dream? You know, not my brightest moment, but I had a problem. You know, not only did I have finals in two days, I'd never seen a full episode of the show before. But, you know, I just told myself to focus on, you know, studying and not worry about it. But it was one of those moments where the thought just claws itself back into your mind. So to prove to myself it was a bad idea, I remember taking out my spiral notebook in, you know, I was in the library. So I take out my spiral notebook, I'm sitting at this small round wooden table and I write on the, you know, I open up the notebook to a fresh page and I write best and worst case scenarios. You know, worst case scenarios, fail finals, get kicked out of pre-med, lose financial aid. Mom hates me. No, mom stops talking to me. Look fat on TV. You know, there were like 20 cons. And the only pro was maybe, maybe win enough money to fund my dream. And it almost felt as if somebody had tied a rope around my gut and was slowly pulling in a direction. So that night I decided to do the logical thing and pull an all nighter to study. But I didn't study for finals. I said, how to hack the prices right. <laughs> and I went on the show the next day and executed this ridiculous strategy and I ended up winning the whole showcase showdown, winning a sailboat, selling the sailboat. And that's how I funded the book. And while, you know, it, That story in itself was crazy. It actually is the answer to your original question of how I ended up finding myself, you know, hitting those keys, feeling like I was shattering my parents' dream. Mm. Because as soon as I, you know, won the price, you know, I had the dream to write this book and go on this mission. And then I got the money. And at that point, you know, nothing was really holding me back except pre-med. And the reason was that, you know, a couple months before freshman year ended, my academic advisor in college told me that the only way I'd be able to graduate on graduate college on time as a pre-med was if I took chemistry over that summer for the whole summer. And I remember instinctively like shouting out, no, because that summer was when I was planning to, you know, write this book. And go learn from Bill Gates and go on this mission. And pretty much she gave me this ultimatum of either, you know, it's the book or it's pre-med and there's no other option. And I remember going back to my dorm room, you know, dragging my feet. But when I got there, things were clearer than I had thought. While I still didn't know what I wanted to do with my life, and while I had no idea where this, you know, idea for this book would lead to, what I did know is that every time I thought about this book and thought about this dream and thought about going on this mission, I felt myself, you know, I felt excited. I had... Enthusiasm, which was something I had been missing for so long. You know, it's something I hadn't really felt since high school student government, you know, except it was, I was feeling on an even bigger scale. And I remember at that time in my life when I was 18, that was the scariest decision of my life, which was telling my family that I was no longer, you know, going to be a doctor. And I was going to try to make this book happen. Mm
0: -hmm. You know, I I think the thing that struck me most in that story uh, was that you mentioned this sense of naive optimism. And (laughs) I'm wondering, as you've gotten older, has that naive optimism stayed the same? And because in my experience, what I've seen (laughs) as we get older is that life experience basically diminishes that naive optimism. There are things that you, you probably, I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, an older version of you might say, well, this is impossible. Uh, and I'm wondering, one, has it changed in your life? And what would you say to, to people who are much further along? Because you were 18 years old at the time.
1: So the reason I, I laughed while you were saying your question is because the answer came to me like as this flash and the answer is very funny to me, which is, you know, you would hope that as I've got an older um, I would become a, a little bit more astute. But the very honest answer is absolutely not. I'm still incredibly naive. <laughs> and I actually think there's a good reason why. And I'm, truthfully, I'm actually very proud of it. Um, you know, right now, you know, even with the book launch, for example,
2: mm-hmm.
1: oh my God, there are so many things that I was like, I'm going to do this and this and this all in two weeks. And... I'm not bullshitting people. I genuinely believe that that's what I was going to do. It was just because I was so naive. And I think the beauty of being, you know, the naiveness comes from a lack of expertise and experience. So it's not about an age in life. It's about a stage in life. You know, you can be 60 years old and be a, you know, I have a friend who is a uh, really famous and accomplished magazine writer. He's 60 years old. And he decided to do a complete career shift and, you know, stop doing magazines and go completely to digital and be a keynote speaker and all this stuff, which was great. Uh, but he, like you know, grossly underestimated the task. Um, and he had that same naive optimism that I had at 18. So it's not about, again, it's not about an age, it's about a stage in life where you're setting out to start something new where where you've never, you know, ventured before and i actually think you know everyone knows all of the disadvantage of being naive and being an amateur you know you don't have experience you don't have expertise you don't know the way things work because you've never done it before you're you know bound to make tons and tons and tons of mistakes everybody knows the downsides I do think the upside is extremely underrated. The upside of being naive, the upside of being an amateur is that because you don't know the way things work, you're not limited by precedent. And an expert, the reason, you know, an expert's so valuable is, you know, she or he knows the way things work. The problem with that, the flip side of that, is because they know the way things, everything has worked and the way everything has been done before, all they see when they're trying to set out on a path are the limitations. Whereas that naive optimist only sees possibility. And that's the most powerful thing you can have when you're setting out to start something new. Mm. Wow. Hold
4: up?
0: There's another quote that um, I underlined while reading the book. He said, many times the hardest part about achieving a dream isn't actually achieving it. It's stepping out through your fear of the unknown when you don't have a plan. Having a Mm -hmm. teacher or a boss tell you what to do makes life a lot easier, but nobody achieves a dream from the comfort of certainty. And for the most part, I think that our social programming largely breeds us to become very comfortable with certainty. And I'm wondering how you start to undo that.
1: Mm. Yeah, I don't I actually I'll take it even a step further and say, yeah, I agree with you to the point where I don't even think it's a desire. I don't think certainty is a is a desire or a luxury. It's really a necessity to staying sane as a human being. Mm -hmm. Like we're hardwired. You know, in many ways, certainty equals survival. You know, if you have certainty that you're gonna be fed and housed and taken care of in a certain environment, you know, only the idiots <laughs> will leave that. And, you know, in many ways, you know, evolution does didn't necessarily, uh, you know, value those risk takers because many of them would die. So it's the ones who follow that path of certainty of, you know, finding the most hospitable environment, staying there, building a tribe. You know, making sure everybody stays. You know, tightly packed and tightly tightly knit. Those are the ones who flourished. But when you look at, you know, our current world and our cu- current society, like you said in that passage you read, you know, no one has ever achieved a dream in the comfort of certainty. And you know, that's not some poetic philosophy it's just a reality of if you have a dream it's probably not to do the same thing you're doing every day achieving that dream will require you to leave the world that you currently know give up things that you currently have in search of something new and you know stepping through that threshold of entering the world of uncertainty is by far one of the scariest things any entrepreneur, any filmmaker, any, any, you know, creator of any kind has to face. And, you know, the second half of your question of, you know, how do we deal with that uncertainty? I would say a couple things. The first thing and, you know, it's something that I deal with, too. So I'll actually answer from a very personal place. You know, again, for example, right now I'm, I'm dealing with this book launch and there is a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of variables up in the air. I um, thought I had this morning. It's, and by the way, dealing with uncertainty isn't this one quick fix. It's a It's a constant reminder, just like, you know, showering every day and washing your hair is a constant thing you have to do. So is dealing with, these natural human fears of, you know, uncertainty and discomfort. It's something you have to deal with every day. Um, a tool I used this morning, a thought pattern I, and framework I use was, you know, I was getting nervous about, you know, how things would play out. And in my bedroom, I have all of my favorite books in there. And I stared at all the books. And I reminded myself every single one of these authors who I not only admire but really revere who have written, some of them, dozens of books that have touched the lives of millions. They all have been in the position I'm in right now. You know, putting out their first book, not knowing how it's going to play out. And it makes me think back to this quote that I heard years ago that really stuck with me. It said, the one thing all great authors, business people, musicians, and people who have changed the world, the one thing they all have in common is that they started when they were none of those things. And to me, that thought is extremely calming in the sense that it makes me feel like what I'm going through right now isn't wrong. It's actually part of the process. Mm.
0: Wow, Uh, so I want to ask you about a term that came about from a quote that you have in the book, and it's what you call an exponential life. Can
1: you define that for us? So the term exponential life comes in the book, and you know one of my favorite parts. And the premise is this, and it comes from Elliot Bisno, the founder of the Summit Series Conference. And the way he defines it is that there's really two kinds of lifestyles. There's a linear life, and then there's an exponential life. A linear life follows very predictable steps. And, you know, if you're lucky, you can go to school and graduate, get an internship, become an associate, you know, work hard, save up, get a promotion, go on a vacation once a year, and, you know, live step by step by step by step by step, slowly and predictably. And on the other hand, there are exponential lives where you decide that you, you know, will not play in that linear game. And instead, you invest your time and your energy into something that has the ability to grow exponentially. And thus your life will follow that same pattern. So instead of going step by step, you skip steps. Instead of, you know, waiting around and pay your dues, you go out and get it right now. And the amazing thing about this exponential life idea that Elliot imparts is that it's really a choice. It's not something, it's not like you graduate college and someone, you know, handing out your diploma makes a mark. All right, Uh, Alex, you're the linear life. Uh, You know, Jake, you're the exponential. You know, it's not like something that's endowed on you. It's a choice. And this is something that's not actually in the book, but it's Elliot and I have talked about this concept a lot. I think one of the things about an exponential life versus a linear life that I think is really interesting is think of, okay, think of a, a graph, like a stock market graph any kind of line graph, right? You have your x and your y axis and you know, you can imagine a linear line, right? With an upward trend. So it's just a straight linear line going up. You can envision that, right? Now, imagine an exponential curve. You know, it starts in the same position, and it starts really slowly. Almost to the point where it doesn't even look like it's growing and then you hit that curve, and it sort of shoots straight up. Now, if you put those two lines next to each other, that linear and the exponential life, there's actually a period where the linear line is higher than the exponential one. And it's something Elliot and I you know, laugh about a lot, which is when we see these young entrepreneurs and their parents are sort of going crazy, going, what are you doing? You know, you left your job, you left college, you know, whatever it may be to work on this thing, and it's going nowhere. What the parents don't know, and look, again, parents always want what's best, but and hopefully, you know, those startups work out, but what these parents don't know, you know, even Bill Gates's parents were freaking out when he left Harvard, is that if you graduate Harvard and get a good job, You're in a much better place that year than the kid who dropped out of college, who dropped out of Harvard to start that startup. And it's not until, you know, five, sometimes maybe even 10 years down the line where there's a drastic boost. And that comes down to the kind of life it is, the linear versus exponential. So...
0: I, I don't want to get out of this question uh, without asking you about what your views are in education, uh, given what you've just told me.
1: I have, you know, I've obviously thought about it a lot because it's a big part of not only my personal journey, but also in the lives of the people who I've studied. And what I believe is this. There's no more powerful Thing on earth than a good education. And I think the headlines and the, you know, those controversial things that we've all seen in Silicon Valley the past few years of, you know, encouraging everyone to drop out of school and this and that, I, I just think that's a huge disservice to, you know, people at large. Now, I think there's a couple things that need to be, you know, and, you know, people are quick to say, oh, but look, Bill Gates dropped out of college. Mark Zuckerberg dropped out of college. You know, college is broken. All these things. It costs so much money. All these things. First of all, you know, this is my take on it. Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg got into Harvard. There's a huge difference between, you know, by the time they got into Harvard and had, you know, pretty much perfect SATs, they were incredibly educated. I think, you know, if people think back on it, it's not like, you know, they dropped out as like third grade dropouts and started Microsoft and Facebook. They were incredibly educated. So I think, you know, that's number one that I think people just their arguments fall apart there. I also think there are there's another really important aspect to you know Bill Gates' and Mark Zuckerberg's stories that a lot of people neglect. And it's that, you know, if you watch the movie The Social Network, or if you just, you know, Google their names, you'll see all these headlines that say, you know, billionaire Mark Zuckerberg, college dropout, founds Facebook. You know, they almost glorify his dropping out of college. But if you go back and you do the research, you'll see that when Mark Zuckerberg was working on Facebook at the time, the so-called the Facebook, and it had 250,000 users and he already had an investment from Peter Thiel, Zuckerberg still didn't want to drop out of college. He was that committed to wanting to stay in school. And it wasn't until Dustin Moskovitz eventually just convinced him, like, look, if we don't take one semester off, this whole company is going to fall apart, then Zuckerberg very reluctantly took one semester off. And with Gates, Gates was also so committed to being in school that when he finally took a semester off to work on Microsoft, when Microsoft didn't take off the way he had hoped, Gates actually went back to college You know, no one ever talks about that. And it wasn't until later that he eventually dropped out. So I think there's this huge disservice that glorifies, you know, dropping out of college as the path to success when really it's actually the other way around, which is it wasn't until Zuckerberg, you know, had, you know, a quarter million users that he cautiously took a semester off. It wasn't until Microsoft was really going strong that Gates finally left school. Mm -hmm. so and again if you just look back to you know if you take your mind out of silicon valley and you just start looking at the world at large there are people who i might even say the majority of people on earth the biggest thing that changed their life the most is getting a good education so to you know talk shit about education is just a is a crazy idea that I don't understand why some people do. Hmm. Now, if you have issues with, you know, the American university system and you have, you know, thoughts on how to change it, that's a whole nother thing, but that's such a small niche in the larger education topic.
0: Yeah. Wow. Um, well, thank you. I I appreciate that perspective. And I think it makes a a really perfect segue to what I want to really kind of spend the rest of our time talking about. This line in particular struck me given what this book was about. You said, I couldn't copy and paste other people's playbooks and expect it to work exactly the same for me. Their playbook worked for them because it was their playbook. It played to their strengths and their circumstances. So I know that one of the things that. you had spoken about uh, when I met you and and written about and something that I also reflected on after having a conversation with Naveen Jane, who's a billionaire, was the fact that there didn't seem to be some sort of holy grail to success. So I have a couple of questions around this. One, why do you think that we believe there is some sort of holy grail to success? Two, what misperceptions do you think that people have about the kinds of people that you came across in this book who are essentially masters of the universe? Like, what do we misperceive about these people? And what surprised you along the way?
1: (laughs) I think one misperception, uh, because I I definitely had the same misperception too, which is that they're masters of the universe. Mm. And, you know, you know this probably better than anyone because you've done all these, you know, interviews where they're masters of their very, very, very specific domain. Mm. And they were masters for a very short amount of time, you know, relative to human history. So, you know, I, I do think because I was probably more susceptible than anyone. And, you know, I wrote a whole book on this idea that, you know, Bill Gates must have the secrets to success. And in hindsight, I can see that, you know, I wasn't that different than most people. I think human instinct which is then reinforced by our culture is you know human beings since you know the dawn of the written word have followed this structure of myth where you know whether you're looking at you know Zeus on mount olympus or you know whatever you know all of the famous fables whatever it may be there there are all these myths of you know there's a secret out there there's a holy grail out there whether it's in a spiritual and religious terms, or if it's in a monetary, you know, there's a there's a buried treasure. There, there's always this human desire of this hope that there is the salvation of all of our suffering ex- exists somewhere. If if only we could just get it. Right. <laughs> and for me, you know, thankfully, you know, I I acknowledge I grew up. Really lucky where my form of suffering wasn't that I couldn't eat or get shelter. My form of suffering was that I was in this, you know, existential crisis. So for me, I assumed my holy grail, my version of buried treasure had to exist in that vice of Bill Gates. So, you know, I don't knock myself. I just think I was just like anyone else. So that's the first thing. And what I did learn is that after talking to all these people, there was never. Oh my God! There's just so much. Pretty much, wait. The question you ask is is the journey. So I, I want to almost spend like five hours going through it, but because <laughs> you pretty much just teed me up to like pretty much read you the whole book from <laughs> to cover. But if I had to sort of if i had to also pull out one thing that i learned yeah is that you know just like that excerpt that you just read which is that you can't just copy other people's styles you have to figure out what's right for you but i realized that while every single person was different and while everyone had their own you know specific keys that launched their careers at their core there was one thing that was actually non-negotiable for all of the people who I interviewed. And it didn't matter if it was Maya Angelou for poetry or you know Steve Wozniak for computer science. They all treated life the exact same way. And what's cool is that this was never anything one of them explicitly said. It, was, it only came after talking to all of them, laying down all their stories and almost finding this common melody. And the analogy that came to me is that Every single one of these people treat life and business and success just like a nightclub. So there's always three ways in. There's the first door, the main entrance where 99% of people wait in line hoping to get in. That's where the line curves around the block. And then there is the second door, the VIP entrance where the billionaires and the celebrities, you know, slip through. And school and society have this way of making us feel like Those are the only two ways in. You're either born into it or you wait your turn like everybody else. But what I've learned is that there's always, always the third door. And it's the entrance where you have to jump out of line, run down the alley, bang on the door 100 times, crack open the window, go through the kitchen. There's always a way. And it doesn't matter if that's how Gates sold his first piece of software or how Lady Gaga got her first record deal. They all took the third door. So that's not only you know, the title and the thesis of the book, but that's really the energy I'm trying to inject into the next generation. Because what I've learned is that, while every single person's life and journey is going to be unique to them. And while trying to copy and paste their exact, you know, step by step is a fool's errand. You know, any book that says, this is how they did it and how, you know, you can do the exact same too. You know, it's just not true. What you can do is learn the mindset and the approach they took and then look within yourself and ask yourself what your circumstances are, what your strengths are, and how you can apply that into this framework. Mm. Because the cool thing about this framework is that it's not a recipe to success, It's a lens to success. It's a way of viewing things that will then give you your answer. Mm. And everyone's third door is going to be different. That's the whole point of the analogy. Some people, it's cracking open the window. Some people, it's going through the kitchen. You know, there's always a different way. And the thing that's so empowering for me with this third door analogy is that it gives people permission. And it changes what people believe is possible. And what I've learned is that you can give someone all the best tools and tactics in the world and their life can still feel stuck. But if you change what someone believes is possible, they'll never be the same. Hmm.
0: Wow. Uh, Well, that was poetic. Uh, I have two final questions uh, that I want to ask you. I know that in the process of writing this book that your father got sick and uh, he passed away. And at the same time, you kind of reached, you know, at this sort of point in your life, what, if, what is effectively the height of your career? And what I wonder is how you navigate the coexistence of the grief of losing a parent and the joy of achieving this dream that you've had ever since you were a freshman in college.
1: I was telling my best friends last night that you know, most people think that I'm dealing with the loss, you know, of my dad and the grief that comes with it during my book launch. Um, but it's the, actually the the opposite is true for me. It feels like I'm dealing with my book launch during the the loss of my dad. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been a year now and I still like, I cry every day and the hardest part of this of this journey has been navigating this loss.
0: I want to finish uh, with one final question, which is how we finish all of our interviews with The Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Hmm. Hmm. Being relentlessly themselves. And I think I believe the reason why that word, you know, relentlessly is so important is that being yourself and knowing yourself and loving yourself is not a, you know, one day act. It's not a thing to cross off the to-do list. It is a constant journey that changes every day. And the more... you look within yourself the more you can know yourself and familiarize yourself with your humanity with the you know dark and far corners of your own soul that's where the magic comes from and i believe that you know whether it's Me going on this quest or someone else going on an adventure to travel the world, someone going on a 10-year journey to make a motion picture, whatever, whatever these quests are that call you. The power of these journeys. While on the outside it's you know someone traveling to the far corners of the world. The power comes from what happens in the far corners of yourself. And the thing is you learn about yourself and thus learn about humanity. And only then can you create something that really touches people. Wow.
0: Well, I think that makes a a very fitting and poetic end to our conversation. Where can people
1: find out more about you and your work? Um, well, first of all, man, thank you so much. This was (laughs) the whole range of emotions (laughs) in this past hour. So I appreciate it. And it was really enjoyable and enlightening. It was a lot of fun. Um, from here, it's really easy. You know, the social handles are all the same. Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are all just at Alex Benayan. So it's Alex. And then my last name is B-A-N-A-Y-A-N. And for the book, it's, you know, out everywhere. And it's, you know, th- the website is thirddoorbook.com. So T H I R D thirddoorbook.com. And of course it's available anywhere books are sold, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Audible, iBooks, you know, you name it. Awesome. And for everybody
0: listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared.
4: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well,